The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. This is Recovery, the Hero's Journey, and I'm your host, Dr. Patricia Halligan. The CDC recently reported 93,000 people died from drug overdoses in the year 2020. This is the deadliest year ever recorded and an almost 30% increase from 2019. Most of the drug overdoses involve young people between the ages of 18 and 35. This episode is dedicated to the 93,000 families who lost someone they loved to the opioid epidemic last year. I'm really excited and honored to introduce our guest today. Robert Cantor is the world's most respected recovery and family advocate addressing the global opioid crisis. He is recognized as an unshakable advocate who tirelessly promotes the destigmatization of substance use disorder and is a staunch proponent of the Portugal model of harm reduction and humanism. His compassionate and authentic interviews, podcasts, articles, op-eds, and press conferences have been featured in media around the world, including NPR, TRT World, CTV, and Talk Radio Europe. Topics include a wide variety of sub- subjects, including his own personal struggles with substance use disorder and how he and his daughter both found their way into recovery. Mr. Cantor's initiatives in the United States Congress have resulted in the passage of significant opioid treatment and funding legislation. His advocacy work encompasses a wide range of topics, including the global surge in opioid overdose deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic, family support legislation in Congress, and federal lawsuits against Big Pharma. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, doctor. It's an honor and privilege to be here. And your timing, if I may say, is, is perfect. As I was mentioning pre-broadcast, we just got an announcement this morning that there will be a settlement announced on Wednesday regarding the landmark opioid distributors trial, which will be $21 billion for treatment um, from the big three opioid distributors and then $5 billion from Johnson & Johnson. So the recovery community is thrilled. This was last uh, supposed to go into November, this trial. And because of what you just said, the 93,000 deaths, may they all rest in peace, um, that was accelerated because there was just too much pressure because every day that goes by and there's no treatment, lives are lost. So we can touch on that later, but your timing and, this, and the outlet that you're providing for, for me to disseminate the information is, is perfect today. This is so exciting. This is breaking news. Literally breaking news an hour ago from my sources in West Virginia and it's in the Wall Street Journal just now, in the New York Times, in uh, Bloomberg, I believe. So you can see it right there. And, um, and it's fantastic. I'm going to do a, an interview tomorrow in Al Jazeera, you know, tomorrow morning. So it's getting around quickly. But the reason it's important, and then I'll, I'll let you move forward, is that there's, it sets a precedent for culpability and for funds. There are over 3,000 lawsuits in the country 
right now on this issue. And so it will speed all of those up. And the ultimate, the ultimate uh, result is that we want the monies to go to treatment because, you know, with what's happening on the streets and with COVID, it's, it's bad. So I wanted to pass that along the top of show and give your viewers, uh, give your listeners great news. And how much money? One more time. Say it one more time. That's magnificent. Yeah. So the three largest distributors are McKesson, Cardinal Health and Amerisource Bergen, they will pay out $21 billion starting at the end of September. Johnson & Johnson will pay another $5 billion for a total of $26 billion. And why is this landmark trial happening in West Virginia? That's a great question. West Virginia was, was just completely devastated by the opioid crisis, more so than any other state. Um, the pill dumping that went in uh, went on in that those communities, those marginalized communities, was was just brutal. And so, what's very interesting is that the counties, Cabell County in West Virginia, brought this lawsuit under a public nuisance uh, code, which is something like, for example, if your neighbor put out garbage, that's a public nuisance. Well, they use that code to file this lawsuit. Um, and then I could talk on and on about culpability, but but West Virginia was devastated. And so they're excited to get these monies to, and they had like no treatment for the, for the people that were suffering from, from opioid use disorder. I mean, it was really incredible. So it's all coming together, the culpability, the funding, this will set precedent, hopefully accelerate the monies for treatment. We're coming out of COVID. So this hopefully will be a better time for everyone. And hopefully the numbers will go down next year. And you are correct. Uh, West Virginia saw the most opioid overdose deaths in the country. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and that, you know, and very little treatment. You could have a hospital that's thirty, you know, takes thirty minutes for the ambulance to get to the individual that overdoses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really, to me, criminal on what happened. But it's always about the dollar, and you know, and pointing fingers. And and like I said, I can talk about that. And I want to thank you, doctor, because when any podcast, any television interview. And, you know, gets this message out to individuals that are suffering from AUD or SUD or OUD, and it saves lives. It's it's the absolute truth. And I I mean I mean the person listening today may not this afternoon may not be suffering from one of those illnesses, but their brother might be or their sister-in-law might be. And that's happened to me where they say, oh, you know what? I heard this and I heard this and I heard this. Maybe you didn't want to get treatment but I just heard billions of dollars are going to treatment. Why don't we look into that? What's out there? What is treatment? You know, that's what has to be done. It's the media, to me, that is the most important cog in the wheel to help reverse this epidemic. You can have treatment, but if, if the media doesn't carry to let people know, they're not going to utilize the treatment. So, so well, I appreciate I, yeah. you very much, you know, l- allowing me to speak on this topic. I'm just very, very honored that you're here. And you and I come from the same place, I think, Robert. The only reason that this podcast exists is because of my frustration with the lack of information and education among my peers, among physicians. And I mean, residential treatment centers have differences in opinions than primary care doctors, than outpatient clinics. And the patients and their families don't know where to turn if they have an opioid use disorder. They come knocking on my door and they'll say to me, you know, Johnny's failed detox five times. And I ask them, well, where did he go to detox? And what do you mean by detox? Well, he was given a methadone taper over a five-day period in the local, you know, drunk tank. And he came out and he used on day six. Well, that's not 
that's not adequate treatment for opioid use disorder. It might not be the right place. There's a saying, uh, I think it was Marsha Linehan on the West Coast of the country who said, people don't fail treatment, uh, treatment fails people. And opioid use disorder is entirely treatable. And it, this is the, the sad thing. I see, I see people getting inadequate treatment, being referred to the wrong treatment. And we've got decades of research into how to treat opioid use disorder. So podcasts like this will just help give families hope, patients hope, and uh, help them not trust the status quo. Uh, one thing you said before is families and parents need to do their own research in order to empower them with resources and tools. Which leads me to uh, my, my first question. You have a unique vantage point, a unique perspective in that you are in recovery from substance use disorder yourself and also have a child who struggled with opioid use disorder. And I believe your beautiful daughter, Sasha, just celebrated three years of recovery. Yes. Yes, ma'am. That's correct. Wow. Congrats. Thank you very much. I can go into that a little more, but it's... Um, Basically, doctor, you know, I'm sober a number of years now. And um, like all of us that suffer from AED and SUD, I live the unspeakable. I won't have to go into detail. I will tell you that I was molested when I was eight years old. You're, mm -hmm. you're the, you know, you're the doctor and how that plays in, I, I guess, can be a topic within itself. But yes. I got sober um, 15 years ago and, um, and things were going great. And then my daughter uh, started, uh, suffered from heroin use disorder three years ago, a little three and a half years ago, locked in an apartment with her drug dealing boyfriend, at times not traceable, just not coming out. Now you can, you know, it was one thing doctor to have my only child killing herself. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it was another, it was another dimension to have a guy giving her the drugs that had his emotional claws in us. So at the time, me and my wife, every time we tried to get close to my daughter, she would just push us away. Mm -hmm. Until we had a conversation at, at a diner, which I'll talk about. So she almost overdosed. And um, um, because she, we, so what happened was, is that my ex-wife and I, my wife at the time, convinced my daughter to meet us at a diner to just speak to her. Mm -hmm. Now, in the past, we tried to punish the problem away. There was yeah. stigma. There was, and especially, I will tell you, I'm of the Jewish faith. Okay. And in the Jewish community, the stigma is rampant. You just don't talk about substance use disorder. And so I always tried to punish the problem away, you know, disown her, you're not part of the family, go live on the streets. And I had read about the Portugal model, okay. where the country of Portugal reversed their heroin epidemic when they took the, the issue out of their legal system and put it into their ministry of health. And they, they would, would uh, and an individual that had less than a 10 day supply of drugs was required to appear in front of what was called or what is called a dissuasion committee, uh -huh. which is a physician, a social worker, and an attorney. They work with that individual. They separate the illness from the individual. They gave them, give them harm reduction tools. They, they direct them to treatment. They don't treat them. They don't treat them as if they have a moral failing. They treat them as someone that's suffering from an illness. Bottom line is they reduce, they reverse their epidemic by 75%. Oh, how marvelous. That's, right. So I decided, and I spoke to my wife and I said, why don't we take that approach, you know, that mentality, as long as she does her due diligence, you know, and, and we have our boundaries, let's tell her we do love her. She is part of the family. We do have her back. And so we convinced her to come to a diner in upstate New York. She came 
high in heroin, but she came mm -hmm. and we had this loving, destigmatized conversation. And I remember looking in her eyes and, and kind of seeing that she, she was in disbelief that this is what was coming. Like she expected something different, you know, mm -hmm. and like maybe we were going to give her money or something. But we came from this place where she was kind of shocked that she was hearing what she was hearing. And she would tell me later that she knew she, at that point she ran out of excuses to play, you know, to, that she didn't have a childhood. She had a victimhood. And so mm -hmm. what happened was he said, well, you know, sweetie, why don't you let us drive you to detox? You know, we, we have your back. We're doing it. And of course, being in recovery, I knew about recovery and the good rehabs and the bad ones and 12 step absence based programs and Matt and all these things. Yep. So she left the diner. We didn't know what was going to happen. My wife and I are crying because it was so emotional. My daughter shows up later with all literally all her belongings in a black garbage bag and says, OK. And we drive her to detox. She doesn't, uh, I learned a term called spin drive, which I had never heard before, which is that these young adults will go into to detox just to lower their resistance to the drugs, knowing they're going to come out of detox, go back in the streets, and therefore they buy less of that drug to get the same effect. Right. So she said, I give you my word, I'm not going to spin dry. Okay. She went to rehab, she went to sober living, and now lives in what I'll call a sober community which is basically a town in Connecticut, but it's, they've got so many young adults going to their 12-step meetings that it's almost like they've built a college campus there. Oh, how wonderful. So, so she has friends in recovery. She has a boyfriend in recovery. She has, her friends are in recovery. That's who she associates with. And two weeks ago, she just celebrated her third year of sobriety. And, and so- How miraculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, and so she got the gift of, of sobriety and I got the gift of sobriety. And that's what launched my advocacy work. I, I can talk about that, you know, later if you like. But that was the defining moment where I said, I need to carry this message to families. You yes. come from a place of like where the country of Portugal did yeah. and, and with with boundaries. OK, yes. Stick by your child and understand they're suffering from an illness. And so you did not give her money. You did not say, come home. I don't want you to die in the streets. You said, we love you and we're with you and we want to be helpful. And if you want to ride to detox, we're here for you. We will walk this journey with you. But at the same time, we'll do what we have to do for ourselves to feel good about our connection with you, which is disarming to her. G give me two feelings, Robert, if you will, uh, that you feel as she's walking away. Uh, and you don't know what the outcome, that might be the last time you're going to see your daughter, and you know you're powerless over the outcome, and that this is a big, bad, horrible addiction, and she's got a using boyfriends, giving her drugs, two feelings that a parent might have in that situation. Well, I can speak for myself, doctor. I, my father died when I was 16 from emphysema. I had no relationship with him. That developed just these tremendous feelings of lack of acknowledgement, which manifested right. itself for me in rage. I had serious rage issues until mm -hmm. I got sober and, and sought the outside help. Yeah. So once again, I felt abandoned. My daughter was walking out. How could she do this? My only child. I, I think I was in shock and didn't know what to expect. And it was, a, yes. it was the, the deep core feeling of pain combined with anger. You know, Absolutely. that's how would I describe it. But I knew I had to sit still and accept. I think I also knew, despite the feelings, doctor, that mm -hmm. this was a really positive step that she came out and hurt us. 
And that no matter whether she came back now or saw treatment in a month, just the fact that she had that willingness and heard us and that the conversation wasn't combative, yes. I knew there would be benefit. I just didn't know when. And you took the anger off the table and the punishment off the table and the stigma off the table and stopped name calling and stopped giving ultimatums and basically just said, we're here for you. We love you. We'll do whatever it takes to help you. Wow. That's yeah, powerful. I, thank you. And that was part of it too, is that when I was an active um, AUD and SUD, I was basically a rageaholic and I'm smashing plates. And, I'm sp and, and so I think that or I know that because she shared this with me, the fact that I didn't behave like that, almost like dad calmed down. He accepts what's going on. Like, you know, it's like the unexpected happened, but I think it's a lot of things for her. You know, we'd have to have her on here, but I think it, it calmed the situation. It wasn't combative. She saw the love that we have for her and now she could make a clearer decision. Um, you know, it, it, do I want to go back and do these drugs again with this boyfriend? You know, or I have these loving parents that, that are ready right now to help me. And I think, oh, she will tell you that that tilted the scale for her. How wonderful you got through to her. And that was a life-saving moment. And I bet yeah. the program of the 12-step program that you work with has helped you learn how to manage your anger and become much more in control of your emotions. A hundred percent. And without my 12-step uh, absence space recovery program, this conversation wouldn't have taken place. The biggest thing, doctor, is that the 12-step program, once I was sober 10 years, opened the door for me to seek the professional help, like let's say with yourself, that I really needed all along. Like it was beyond right. the scope of the 12-step model, but I never would have gotten to that point had it not been because of, of, of the program that I subscribe to. So yeah, that pretty much, it saved my life. And then I guess indirectly, it, it saved my daughter's life. Yes, because if you were still drinking and drugging, you would have no credibility. So she sees her dad, he's clean and sober. You have credibility here. And I, I think so. And yes. control over your emotions. And you can put yourself aside and your own ego aside because of the 12-step program. And you can just say, hey, I'm here to help. This is all about you. This is not about me. That's, and the that's other, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much. The other thing is being in recovery. I, I came down to her level and I said, okay, you know, you did this, you did this, you did this. I kind of did some bad stuff too that I never shared with you. I'm right. not an angel. And yeah. And she was like, you know, she was like, you did that? You know, I mean, it was just, it was a game changer. The yeah, conversation no, was a game changer. No judgment. Judgment-free zone, yeah. Yep. And you were involved in passing the Family Support Services for Addiction Act. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this and uh, tell us what it offers parents. So this was legislation that was introduced last year um, in the last Congress by Congressman David Trone who is um, the individual most active in Congress uh, legislatively as it relates to uh, bills relating to AUD and SUD and funding and so forth. Um, it's bipartisan. So on the Senate side, it was Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Okay. And basically it is legislation and it's $25 million over five years for family support services for families that have loved ones suffering from AUD and SUD, right? Um, um, AUD and SUD, these are family illnesses and the people we hurt the most are the people we love the most. Right. Now, again, going back to the media doctor, 
25 million is, is just pennies in the world, mm -hmm. okay? But it's not pennies because it lets families know that, that our government sees that money needs to go to the family. So it's an empowering element for parents to say, oh, they, they're on top of it. They get it. We need help too. We need support services. And to your, your point at the very beginning of this podcast, the other thing that the money's provided, what's called systems navigation. Systems oh. navigation allow for monies to train parents on how to handle a rehab. So what do you do? Which kind of rehab do you call? Do you, do you get in touch with? What elements do you want to look for? Is it a 12-step model or medication-assisted treatment? What's the success rate? What's the reputation? All of these different things, not to mention the element of, of insurance companies and, the, and, the, and then there's the parity laws and, 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 um, and Patrick Kennedy where after two weeks, you have to be recertified to right. stay in a rehab and there's all things that go on with that. So, you, you know, I was just thinking when you open the show, like what could be more frightening than having a child that's killing themselves yeah. from drugs and alcohol and not know what to do? Like, not, not have, not, you know, like, like it's life and death if you have, you know, someone's in cardiac arrest. Okay, take them to yeah. the cardiac unit. But to be clueless, when, you know, is a, it's a scary, it's a scary um, scenario. Absolutely. And you expect that people are going to be able to help you. You expect if you go to your family doctor and say, my son has a heroin addiction, that he's going to know about the best treatment centers in the country. But because of the lack of addiction training in our med schools and the lack of addiction residency and fellowship programs, the, the statistics in America are you have 5,400 people suffering from substance use disorders to every one addiction specialist. Wow. Right. So the odds are against you finding something out from your primary care doc. You really need to have a specialist and they don't know where to find them. And I always tell people, uh, call the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry and find out how many addiction psychiatrists are in your state and then how many are close to your town or call the American Society of Addiction Medicine and ask the same question. Get a list of every medical doctor certified in addiction medicine and go to that person and have an evaluation. Um, I was going to say, you're absolutely correct. But now here's a reason why this funding for the for Family Support Services for Addiction Act is important. People can do that, what you just said, but what they really are attracted to are local community organizations. Like mm -hmm. they feel more comfortable if they're in Phoenix, Arizona, for example, and there's the Phoenix, you know, outreach program for addiction mm -hmm. and they can call locally and they can say, okay, you know, can you tell me in, in my area, you know, in uh, North Pima Road, for example, where can I find, you know, um, a qualified person? So, and, and um, I'm actually constructing my website now and, and the contact page, I have all of these different hotlines that, that someone viewing the webpage can call. Oh, that's and, wonderful. And they're even more specific to, you know, African-American and Latino and military and getting, giving them as much information as possible. But yes, doing that and then any organizations within your area and specifically ones that you are connected with is also very, very important for, for your listeners. How wonderful. What is your website that people can access, Robert? It's, it's right now it's under construction. Right mm -hmm. now, it's, 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 I was hoping it would be finished by the time I did this broadcast. Yeah. Um, and what's happening is, is there's so many additions going on. Like I have an interview now in Al Jazeera tomorrow. This whole trial has now just bombarded me you know, with 
more stuff. So now we're waiting to get that to update all of the media appearances on the website. So, um, but I said, you know what, Dr. Halligan is more important than Al Jazeera or China Global Television. I have to do her first. Oh, and thanks. And then we'll get to those lesser <laughs> media entities. That's it. <laughs> You know, I, I appreciate it because uh, our goal together here is to talk to parents and families and arm them with some resources. So I love the fact that this navigation help is out there for parents. Is there um, a particular resource uh, website that you go to? I'm going to give you three organizations that I think would be great. The first okay. one is called Faces and Voices of Recovery. And they do a bunch of different things. They're very grassroots. The executive director's name is Patty McCarthy. She has worked with the first lady when uh, President Trump was in office with Melania Trump. She's testified at hearings regarding um, AUD and SUD legislation. They are right on top of everything. So if you go to facesandvoicesofrecovery.org, they are a wonderful organization. The next organization based out of New York is called Shatterproof. And that's with a gen- gentleman called Gary Mandel. And he's a very well-funded organization. He lost his child, unfortunately, to an overdose. May mm-hmm. rest in peace. Mm-hmm. And he's doing just wonderful things with many, many different organizations. And also, he has a program where you can use, it's an online program. And I forgot, I think it's called Atlas, where okay. you can go on and they have vetted the rehabs. So oh. that when you get the information, you're already knowing that they have been, that they have been vetted. It's wonderful. Um, and, um, and one that they should really keep in mind is Young People in Recovery. Young People in Recovery is a great organization, and they set up recovery communities with certain tools in many, many different cities. And you'll find a lot of times, you would know more about this, doctor than I, is that young adults connect sometimes more with young adults than they do with like an old fart like me. I'll speak for myself. I'm, I'm an old fart. <laughs> and You're is- not. You look great, but... <laughs> Nope. Uh, young people in recovery. Is that an offshoot of AA? Not at all. Okay. Not at all. Has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with that. Um, it, it is just a, a group of young, young people in recovery yep. that have really mobilized and have, and they are at the level of young people. So they really know, they know the street jargon and they know, they know, they, they, they get it. You know what I mean? They get it. There's even, you know, sober campuses and sober high schools and sober, you know, dorms. There's, there's a, to your point, there's a lot of information. You can enroll your, somebody in a, in a sober high school if you want, you know, mm-hmm. if, if there is one in your, in your school district. So those three organizations, and there are many others. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm just as a footnote, um, my email is robert at robertcantor.org. And any one of your listeners is more than free to email me. More oh. than free. And I'm... I'm happy to connect with them. And I think it's wonderful. I thank you for those three resources. That's great. And I think when you've got a young person in recovery, they give up using for the first time and they need to learn how to have fun without alcohol and drugs. And they need to have a, a big social circle to support them. And typically they have to cut ties with all of their previous friends. So they're lonely. So, and loneliness is such a big trigger for relapse. So I, I love the idea of young people in recovery. Shatterproof I'm familiar with, and I love that website also. And the other one was uh, Faces and Voices? Of Recovery. Of Recovery. Okay. They're based in Washington, D.C., and um, Shatterproof is in New York City. And I'm not sure, I think young people in recovery are on the West Coast, um, but they're all great. They're all great organizations. When I was talking about parents doing research, 
you know, look at these websites, but call. They're so helpful. Yes. Call and say, I'm a parent. My son or my daughter are struggling. Can I speak to someone? It doesn't have to be in the environment of a hotline. It can just say, can someone take five minutes to educate me a little bit more because I have no idea what to do. And they'll direct you. There's, um, there are parent coaches. They have mm -hmm. many, many different programs. And just go online, look at these organizations and call and educate yourself so that when you have that loving, destigmatized conversation with your child, you're armed with that information to share with them. And can you comment on the advantage of having a parent coach? What do parents need in terms of support and why do they need it if they're dealing with someone struggling from, say, a heroin addiction? Because they, parents, need to understand, parents need to draw on the wisdom of other parents who have been through this experience. They almost have to be led with kid gloves and by a hand. And I'll give you an example. Held, you know, to, um, to explain what's happening, for another parent to say, here's the feelings I went through. This is what you might be experiencing. Here's what you could do. Here the support, you know, like if there's, and you would be able to comment that if there's ever a time that a parent needs support and knowledge, it's when something, when your child is killing themselves. I mean, you know, and, and my daughter had the benefit, the fact that I am in recovery. So I had already a support network and all of those things, but, but I would say most parents don't. No, they don't. And they're operating from a place of fear that they could lose their child on a daily basis, which makes them act in a controlling way. And they get angry. And as you say, stigma uh, enters into the picture. And also, it's really hard to set boundaries, uh, healthy boundaries with someone who's in active addiction. They can get really mean. And they'll fight you. And they'll make you feel like the bad guy. And they'll make you feel hated. And like you're saying, if you had rejection or abandonment uh, issues from, you know, your own childhood, they resurface when your own child rejects you, you know, tells you to go jump in the lake, uh, you know, doesn't want any, to listen to anything you have to say and treats you like you're just, you know, annoying them. Uh, so, yeah, they need support around boundary setting, effective communication, and navigating the uh, resources that are available. So, yeah, they, they shouldn't do this on, on, on their own. Right. And of course, as you well know, there are 12 step programs for families um, that specifically deal with um, having a loved one. It could be a friend. It could be a child. It could be a sister that are suffering from AUD and SUD that they can also, you know, um, tap into those resources and meetings as well. As you right. as you well know, you're, you're, when someone with a parent has this situation and they come to you, you're becoming part of their support team, their support yes. network. And whether it's these 12-step support groups or any support groups, you want to build your support network so that you can lean on them in this difficult time instead of trying to figure out this life crisis on your own. Right. Right, so. Now, you recently wrote a guest column for Dr. Jonathan Avery, Director of Addiction Psychiatry at Cornell New York Hospital, entitled Commitment Yields Success in 12-Step Programs, and it appeared in Psychology Today. Can you talk a little bit about, you're speaking okay. now to people suffering from opioid use disorder, specifically. How do 12-Step Programs help uh, get someone into recovery and maintain abstinence? So there are many pathways to recovery and more pathways to recovery in, let's say, the last 10, 15 years, specifically medication-assisted treatment. And I support all of them. Me too. But it's, it's, under, it's important to understand 
the commitment you must take with each type of pathway to recovery. Now, I subscribe to a 12-step abstinence-based fellowship, which, mm-hmm. are, you know, which, are, which I attend mutual aid meetings. So we'll just start with the 12-step model. Now, the 12-step model, I even prefer to not mention the names of the organizations, but That's people okay. more or less know, um, have been around for 80 years and help, have helped millions and millions of people achieve long-term sobriety. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain model, which means you, it is suggested that in these in, in this organization or in this 12-step model, you attend a meeting every day for three months. Mm-hmm. Now, ten, attending a one-hour meeting plus travel time is a 10-hour-week commitment in time just in meetings. Mm-hmm. It's suggested you That's a lot. You know, yeah. that's 10 hours. Yeah. You have, you know, you, it is suggested you get what's called a mentor. A mentor mm-hmm. is someone you work with. They're your lifeline mm-hmm. outside of the meetings. And you read literature together. And then there's reading the literature. This is enormous amount of time every week that someone must subscribe to. And when they do that, the program has this enormous success rate. Mm-hmm. But if someone comes to one or two of these mutual aid meetings and they say, ah, I'm not sure, I'll come back in three days. It's like taking, taking half of your you know, prescription for Suboxone and saying to the doctor, well, I didn't like the side effects, so I took only half. It right, was like, oh, well, that's why it didn't work. You know? yeah, I mean, duh. yeah. Right. So the article is about specifically understanding that um, because there's a lot of pushback in the 12-step programs now. There's a lot mm-hmm. of pushback that they are ineffective. They have a high uh, failure rate. And, and again, educating people and educating families. If your son is willing, if your son comes out of rehab and you're saying, okay, I heard about these 12-step programs, but just understand you have to commit to this amount of time every week for it to work. Do you want to do that? Oh, yes. you don't want to do that? You're, you're too busy? Then don't waste your time because it's not going to work for you. And you know that what? Was, that what, that what was you're, the essence. What you're saying, Robert, is actually uh, supported by research. Uh, John Francis Kelly, a PhD psychologist from uh, Harvard and Mass General, has just researched 25 years of Alcoholics Anonymous and what the studies have shown. And he's gone, this is worldwide research uh, and many, many randomized clinical controlled studies and what they've found is 20 to 60% more likely to get sober and stay sober with regular AA meeting attendance in the first three years. Not only you have a bigger chance of getting sober, you have a, uh, less relapses, longer abstinence, happier relationships, more life satisfaction. 100%. 100%. And that goes to, your, to my point of my relationship with my daughter, which was always very, very you know, com- com- confrontational, combative, unhealthy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, accusatory, and because of my subscription. And what's interesting is this, I support all the studies, the, the study you mentioned, the Cochrane reviews, I support all of them. But believe it or not, one of the problems with the studies is the anonymity aspect of these 12-step fellowships. So yeah. you can do samplings. Right. However, when someone comes out of that environment, sometimes their answers are skewed because of the issue of anonymity. Do I want people to know, you know, what I'm saying here or what I'm doing? The studies are wonderful. They've really, they've really done a tremendous job on all the samplings and the amount of time that they've spent. Right. My experience has been that the real study and sampling are within the fellowship of individuals that have long-term sobriety for years and decades that can say, my observation has been if someone does a meeting every day for three months and gets a mentor and reads the textbook, I've almost never seen someone fail. Whereas I see that when they don't do that, 
most of them fail. And then when you take tens of thousands of these individuals and you clump them together, you get a pretty good idea. Like I didn't make this up. You get a pretty good idea of what works and doesn't within the fellowship. You see what I'm saying? So that was the gist of the article is if you're willing to commit to all this time, and then as you know, doctor, there's more levels, you know, when you're working those 12 steps, there's going to be a need for honesty and a willingness to, to talk about your shame and to take the power out of your shame with an individual that you've just met. A lot of people don't want to do that. Well, they don't want to look in the mirror and they don't want to talk about the shame and they can't manage the feelings that come up. And it's, uh, you know, yeah, the only people that it doesn't work for are the people that have the uh, lack the capacity to be honest with themselves. Uh, but I, I share your belief. Uh, what is um, the best advice you ever got from your sponsor? Well, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm going to have to think about that. Um, or your favorite, favorite uh, 12-step slogan. Um, or the favorite 12-step slogan that was most helpful while your daughter was struggling with her heroin problem. Um, uh, well, it, it's actually a prayer. It's the acceptance prayer. Uh, there was tremendous amount of acceptance that I had to have a tremendous amount. I, you can only imagine what was going through my mind when she's locked in an apartment with this guy that's dealing her drugs. I had to have a tremendous acceptance, a real deep faith, though they say replace the fear with the faith and that, yes. that it would work out. And, so and to is pull that back, the so serenity I, prayer? It's the serenity prayer and, and yeah. there's an acceptance prayer and it's, it's about leaning on the program or a power greater than yourself if that's what you believe in as opposed for me to try to solve the problem. You know, and that's where the yes. fellowship of the 12 step is, is so critical. And for me, with my rage issues, I had to keep those rage issues under control. I yes. had to because I'd end up in, I, I absolutely would have ended up in jail with what I wanted to do to this individual. And I had yes. to back off. And my daughter would have wanted me to back off, too. You know, right. she would say, leave me alone. Let me take this journey and figure this out. You don't need to come and, you know, smash his head with a, a frying pan. You know, that's not going to, that's not going to solve anything. You know, you're going to end up paying the consequences. I mean, we have one day at a time we have live and let live, you know, that's a form of acceptance. Yes. Um, there are, there are many, many that, that we use all the time, but the first thing that comes to mind is that in order for me to have been an effective parent, I had to restrain myself from, from my, from my, my angry behavior. With a radical acceptance attitude. Uh, Okay. She has a heroin addiction. Okay. She's with a bad guy. She, okay. She may die and I will love her and I will offer what I can, but I will let the rest go or turn it over. That's, That's and, and, to be to constantly well, you want to you want to talk about a gem from my sponsor. He yes. said, "Just remember, you're not your daughter's sponsor. You're her father." And what that I, means is, I, like is that. I had to yeah, I had to learn to not preach the gospel, like where to find the middle ground. Right. And what that means is talking to her more about my experience and my recovery, right. as opposed to saying, "Here's what you should do." Yes, and um, because I, I had so much program in me. That I, I, it's almost like I want to be your sponsor. So, did you do this meeting today? Did you read right. this in the book today? And did you do this? Feels and so controlling. Yeah, yeah. Now, can you talk a little bit about stigma against medications for opioid use disorder and uh, how you feel about that? 
um, you have this perception, and this is where I think a lot of the pushback from 12-step programs comes, that mm -hmm. as a whole, the 12-step organizations believe that you can't be sober if you're using Suboxone or Vivitrol or Methadone. That's not the case at all. Do you have 1% of the old timers that will say that? Absolutely. Right. You know, everyone has their opinions. There is yep. no decree with, you know, the 12-step organizations on that whatsoever. I support every pathway of recovery, as I, as I mentioned before. Yes. Whatever, whether it's MAT, whether it's harm reduction or smart recovery, whether it's 12-step programs, whether it's neuroplasticity, I don't care. We're all in the same team here. Right. But, um, and I think most people, or I know most people in 12-step fellowships embrace it. There's, an, there's a, um, a chapter in our textbook called We Are Not Doctors. Oh. And I'm not, you're right. trained in certain years that I am not trained in. Right. We are not trained to tell someone in recovery that you should not be on a certain medication. That's for you and your physician to decide. Mm -hmm. and, and as long as you take that, that, um, that medication as prescribed, yes. basically it's none of our business. You want to talk to your sponsor about it, that's great. But, but we're not doctors. You know, we don't make those, you know, we're not medically trained. Now, if you take, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you take opioids and you don't take them as prescribed, that's a different story. Absolutely. I like your stance on that uh, because we have 20 years of research uh, on buprenorphine, on Suboxone, and even more research on methadone. And these are two medications that show 20 years of research. If you take either buprenorphine, which is Suboxone or methadone, there is a 50% reduction in overdose death and a 50% reduction in relapse. And with all the fentanyl that's on the streets right now, why would we be pushing abstinence if we have two medications that will tell basically the, the individual you've got a 50% reduced race rate of an overdose death or of a relapse, and also it will increase your retention and treatment? Why not? And it doesn't get the person high. It is if the person is already opioid tolerant, it is not replacing one addiction with another. It's simply... Uh, making the person's cravings go away, their withdrawal going away and uh, help them feel normal. Right. And doctor, I, I agree with you, but respectfully also disagree. And I'll tell you why, when mm -hmm. it's not just about this person suffering, stopping to use the substances, it's, it's, it's living a life as someone that has this disorder. You're the right. 12 step fellowships are, are an outline or a roadmap on how to, as you mentioned, how to deal with certain situations, how to have a healthy relationships. Right. Just like if they came to you because they need life coaching, they need to yes. understand not just about the medications, but you know, what do I do? How do I grow in, in, in my recovery and so forth? That's the other dimension of the 12-step programs that you do get. When that obsession is lifted, you have this 12-step this model that addresses, you know, like when we talk about making amends to individuals and going and owning your, your shameful behavior and things like that, that you wouldn't get, obviously, in, in a MAT program. So there are other benefits to that. But I, I, I say, you know, we never had 20, 25 years ago these wonderful medications. True. Why wouldn't you take advantage of them? You know, right. but and we maybe, need, yeah. Yeah, and maybe combine them with the other programs, right? Like 100%. Uh, yeah. 100%. That's the ideal scenario. If I have right. a sponsee, I say, you're on Suboxone, listen to your doctor. Don't even talk to me about it. If, you're, if it's right. working for you, 
work with your physician on that particular area. And, and if, if I observe that you're not doing well, I'll just say you're not doing well. I'm not yeah. a physician. I don't know if it's specifically the medication, if you're on, should be on more or on less or whatever mm-hmm. the case is. But um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't believe that. But, but when you have evidence-based research and you have that, those numbers and, and you're you know, in, in the field, of course, it's about saving lives. Now, I've heard you say on several podcasts and interviews that if I just save one life, that's enough. And I just really relate to that. It's very passionate and it uh, brings to mind, did you ever see Schindler's List? Remember at the end of uh, the movie, uh, Oscar Schindler is standing on the railroad platform and his right hand is saying, you have saved 1,100 people, 1,100 people and generations are alive because of you. And he starts to cry and he says, but I should have saved more. And he's crying and crying. And then um, Ishtak Stern says to him, there's a saying from the Talmud, he who saves one life saves the world entire well, I wrote an op-ed for the Jerusalem Post, if you, if you happen to look at it, um, to my LinkedIn profile, and that's what I put at the very end, when you save one life, you save the world. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Because when I heard you, I thought this man is embodying that quote. Are you fulfilling your soul's mission? I think I am, because basically, my God, whatever that is, I know all I know about that is it's not me has taken me for a ride that a year and a half ago, I didn't know there was an opioid epidemic. And I mean, literally one thing to one thing to one thing to Senator Gillibrand to a public access interview to an article in the Jerusalem Post to an interview on Talk Radio Europe. And then it's just been taken on a life of its own. What a whirlwind. It's been incredible. I mean, it's nothing. When I say miracles, it's not in the religious sense, doctor. It's in the unexpected. The unexpected keep kept happening. The basic premise was, I've been given the gift of sobriety. My daughter's been gifted, given the gift of sobriety. Let me give back by doing volunteer work. And then the ride began. It's, it's, it's just incredible. And for me, as opposed to some of the other leading advocates like Tim Ryan, Ryan Hampton, Chris Heron, I have really taken this internationally. And I hope they do too. And for example, tomorrow I have an interview on Al Jazeera and I've been on TRT World. I mean, these are very, these are like CNN World. These are networks, RT, Russian T. They reach like hundreds of millions of people. These it's are the wonderful. big boys. It's wonderful. And we need, we need the media. We need you. We, we have to, it's all well and good to have legislation. People need to know what the services are. So if you were speaking right now to the parents of a young child with a heroin use disorder, what would you tell them to do when they stop listening to the podcast? I would tell them, again, first and foremost, to do the research that, that you know, by getting online, those organizations I talked about, um, local organizations, there are almost always, in, there are in every city, um, and if not in the proximity, um, organizations, community organizations that deal specifically with, with AUD and SUD and, and OUD. Absolutely. Research them. Call them if necessary. You can even call the hotlines, even though that, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a big proponent, you know, and reach out to these people and educate yourself. Educate yourself on what's out there. So, and then try to sit down with your child in a calm manner and say, 
we're learning all this is a learning process for us too you know we're from a different generation mm -hmm. we understand what's on the streets we understand what types of treatment are available we want you to know that even though it may not have appeared that we we love you we do love you right. we know you're suffering we know you can do better than this if you get the help that's needed and we're here to support you so i think a combination of three things doing the research Speaking to your child in that loving, you know, what's the, what's, what is stigma? It's the absence of compassion. That's what yes. stigma is. So yes. it's, it's, it's the research. It's having this loving, destigmatized conversation. And then for yourself, for the parent, build that support network. Go to those 12 such support, you know, programs for, you know, which ones I'm talking about, for those that no, are relatives. I can, I can say them out loud. Yes, you can. Okay, <laughs> can, can I please? So uh, go to Al-Anon, go to Naranon. Find a group that works for you. Find some people that you identify with, and those people will welcome you with open arms. 100%. 100%. I, I just try to, you know, everyone more or less. Well, I take that back. When it comes to Al-Anon, a lot of people don't know about Al-Anon. They might know about AA or NA, but they don't know about Al-Anon. Al-Anon is such a wonderful, you can walk in. It's important to know there's no charge. You're welcome. You sit down, you want to share in the meeting, you're welcome to share. You want to just listen, nobody will bother you. But right. you're going to see parents there that are dealing with the exact same thing as you yes. that are more than welcome to help you and speak right. to you and exchange numbers yeah. and build that support network just, just, like, you know, just like you are a support person for all of your patients. Yeah, don't stay isolated and don't stay silent. And at Al-Anon and Naranon teach a lot about boundary setting and self-care. And uh, there's more power and connection in a group than staying alone in shame, not talking in your house. Don't carry this alone. You can't do this alone. You need a village. Now, do you want to say anything more about this groundbreaking uh, trial in West Virginia? Oh, see, I'm glad you didn't forget. <laughs> I didn't forget. It's very exciting news. It, that's what I love about you, Robert. You're hopeful. You, and that's probably because you participate in a 12-step program. You don't stay in the problem. You, you jump into the solution. And we could sit and bemoan the state of affairs, but we're not. We're talking about, hey, there's some hopeful things on the horizon. Suboxone is probably the most hopeful thing I have seen in 24 years in my career, and I am a huge advocate of AA and NA. And I've right. seen miracles with both Suboxone and AA and NA. But um, yeah, please, uh, a little bit more hope uh, with respect to this landmark trial in West Virginia. Sure. The, the problem with who's responsible for the epidemic is that you have maybe five different parties. So you have the opioid distributors, right? They're the ones that dump the pills into these marginalized communities. I mean, like hundreds of millions. But mm. they say, okay, we might have transported them, but we didn't prescribe them. That's the doctor's fault. Right. The doctors say, well, some of them overprescribed, but most physicians didn't. Plus, we have pain management thresholds we have to manage, as you know. So we're not responsible. It's the distributors. And then the manufacturer, the manufacturers like Purdue Pharma say, we followed FDA guidelines. They let us label it a certain way and so forth. And then the pharmacists say, well, you know what? We have to, we have to dispense drugs and so forth. So what happens is when everybody's responsible, nobody's responsible. Yes. Because everybody points fingers. D diffusion of responsibility. That's well said, diffusion of responsibility. So mm -hmm. this was, uh, um, there are over 3,000 lawsuits pending around the country against distributors and manufacturers regarding the opioid epidemic. 
because these are the largest three distributors, and now this settlement includes Johnson & Johnson, it is, is a precedent for these other lawsuits, right? And so this trial, which was against McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, which are the three leading distributors of opioids in the country, along with Johnson & Johnson, kind of on a, a separate topic, um, was expected to go on until November. We just found out this morning that a settlement will be announced Wednesday, I actually found out. $21 billion will go toward treatment nationally. Each state can pull from that, from that pool. And $5 billion coming from Johnson & Johnson also for treatment. So we, I, I had this conversation actually with the producer of Al Jazeera, and, and he said that there are a lot of parents that aren't happy with this settlement. And I said, okay, we have a public health emergency. And the CDC numbers just went up to 93,000. Right. And we have the opportunity right now to get funding and dollars to save let's, lives. Let's take it. Let's take it. Right. Let's take it. So this is groundbreaking. The, com the recovery community is thrilled about this. And, and we got to get those numbers down, you know, and the only way you're going to do it is effective treatment. And like you said, you know, what you're, you know, talking about Suboxone, let's get those monies out to get the treatment and to educate everyone because, We've lost about as many people from, from uh, in the last five years, I think it is, the last 10 years, I have to check my numbers, 500,000, it's almost the same as COVID, to, yes. to overdoses. That's, that's how bad it is. That's and how bad it is. And then you multiply that by five people affected by these deaths, five people per family, or five, at least five people who really desperately love that individual, and then what do we have? I mean, it's, it's off the charts. Well, I'm not going to ask you, we're going to have to close, but I'm not going to ask you... Uh, to define a spiritual awakening in your own journey, because I can actually already uh, feel it. Uh, I mean, you've done a lot of personal reflection and a lot of connecting with people in the program and a lot of work on yourself. And it's amazing when I see somebody take their talents and align them with the will of the universe it's it, like you're saying, you're on this whirlwind journey that's not an accident. You were meant to do this, and you offer so much hope uh, and support and enlightenment to uh, people all over the world. And I just, it's really my honor and my privilege. Uh, keep talking, Robert, because I think it's, uh, we can't stay silent, and people need to be helped, and they need to know where to go and what to do. So um, it's my honor to have you on the show. And it's an honor and thank you. And it's a pleasure to speak to you. And it's wonderful to know that your knowledge, how in-depth it is so that you can help your patients as well. So it's, it's great. And I'm sure we'll speak again. I hope so. And, uh, All right. Thank you for having me as a guest. I appreciate it very much. It's been my pleasure. Um, this is uh, Recovery, The Hero's Journey. And uh, I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.